0: If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. We always, we've been joking through this. If you want to see growth in the church, sing hymns and preach through Ezekiel. And uh, that's, that's, so that's what we're doing. And because that's what every, every church growth revitalization book says, is, you know, just preach through Ezekiel and your church will grow. Um, that's not, obviously, we, we do this because we love God's word. And we know that God has been at work through the ages and through the scriptures, and sometimes, sometimes we get into the situation, as we talked about when we, when we began this series, that God has become, well, how should we say, somewhat predictable, like behind the glass, like you go to the zoo and you see the tigers and, and the lions and, and all the, the dangerous animals, but they're behind the screen, they're behind the plexiglass, and you want, they're in their enclosures, and we're kind of like, eh, all right. That's cool, it's the end of the day. You know, where's the churros? You know, like sometimes we, we do that. And when we come to Ezekiel, we come to God outside of the enclosure, right? That we come to God untamed, wild. And we have to take a step back and we have to realize there's no yawning at God. That we, we've come face to face like Ezekiel with the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God and Ezekiel will never be the same for that. And our hope is that when we come to encounter God, we will never be the same. And so we have this book, Ezekiel, and we're walking through. Let's open up to chapter 8, verse 1. However, you're looking at God's Word, maybe you've got it on an app, maybe there's a Bible in the pew, or maybe you brought your own Bible. But as is our custom, let's stand in honor of God and His Word as we read this chapter. We're going to be reading um, chapter 8, 1 through 14, or 1 through 18. Um, but we'll be looking at chapters beyond this as well. So let's read from Ezekiel. I'll read this out loud for us. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of, of brightness, of gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. And he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the distance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court where I looked, And behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his own room of pictures. For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations That they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Israel, and behold, there sat women reaping for Tammuz. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about twenty five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord. And their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit these abominations, that they commit the here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me to still further anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So this chapter in Ezekiel, we've walked through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, we see a vision of God, this vision of God by the Kabar Canal, which is really an irrigation dip ditch by a refugee camp in Babylon, where the nation of Israel has found their place. And And behold God shows up in by this irrigation ditch in this in this refugee camp and you're wondering what is God doing what is God doing in Babylon I thought God's home was in the temple and Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet and he's supposed to be a priest a reconciler but he becomes a prophet of woe and at this very particular time in the nation of Israel we're not on the we're not on the rise of the nation. We're not even at the peak of the nation. We're not even at the decline of the nation. We're at the very bottom of the decline of the nation of Israel. And they've gone to the place where God says, "Look, the Babylonians are coming, and his contemporary Jeremiah has said, "Even if you plead for God to be merciful, He will not be merciful. The Babylonians are already coming. It's too late." And we find ourselves, and Ezekiel finds himself in the middle of this story, and we've talked about this idea, you don't get to choose where you're born into the story. And faithfulness in various parts of the story is going to look different to, at different times. We were born on this side of the cross, where we have Jesus to look to, but Ezekiel is at a point where God is in a covenant with his people, but his people have broken their covenant. And in a, before the cross, before the sacrifice of Jesus, we have God now working out what this broken covenant is going to look like and what it looks like is it looks like judgment and we're going to see this mixture of God's judgment but also his mercy today and so I want to just walk through this if this this is going to sound a little a little crazy because what we have here and this is kind of interesting is we have what we call apocalyptic literature okay when some of you guys think about apocalypse you think about like the end of the world The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. But it doesn't always have to do with the end of the world. Apocalypse, the word apocalypsis in Greek is this idea of revelation. And oftentimes in apocalyptic apocalyptic literature, if I can say the word, oftentimes in apocalyptic literature, you have a human being that is brought up into the heavenly realms and is able to reach back behind the curtain and see what's going on kind of behind the scenes. And Ezekiel is given an opportunity to do something like that in this passage. And his, his vision, the revealing, the apocalypse that he is going to see goes from chapter 8 until the end of chapter 11. And what I want to do is I kind of want to walk through what he sees and I want us to engage for a little bit with this idea of what is God's judgment Why does God have wrath, and what do we do with it? We talked last week about these two terms, and two things that are going to show up in this passage, idolatry and judgment, and that in our culture today, those sound like archaic words of a bygone era, and sometimes they can lose their meaning to us, or they're, they're distasteful to us. But nonetheless, they're here and we have to deal with them, and so that's what we're going to do today. So let's walk through this passage, and then I want to say something. Last week we talked about idolatry and what idolatry is, what an idol is, but this week I want to talk a little bit more about judgment, and I want to walk through this, and then I want to say a few things about the idea of God's judgment, okay? All right, you guys with me? All right, let's 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 take a look. Um, there's a lo- number of things in this. Again, we have to get in kind of the way back machine, and we have to... Um, this might have, it might have even sounded a little bit harsh, a little bit difficult. But there's a number of things in here that I want us to pay attention to. So for example, look at 8.1. In the sixth year of the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. Okay, why does he give the dates? Okay, the dates show that this is about 14 months from his original vision. You guys remember the original vision? It's on his 30th birthday Okay? and he has this vision, and, th- and then he's told, well, I want you to do, God says, look, Ezekiel, I'm going sh- to shut you up. You're supposed to say things. You're going to be a watchman, but I'm going to shut your mouth, and what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to perform all of these things. So you're going to make a scale model of Jerusalem, and you're going to lay siege to it, this little thing. You're gonna, and you're going to do that laying on your side and bound for like 390 days, and then 40 more days. Well, this is the end of those 390, these 430 days. So what is being said is Ezekiel has already gone through his laying on his side, and he's attracted all this attention. He's played with the scale model of Jerusalem in the vision of all these in the refugee camp. And what has happened is he has attracted an audience. And it's become clear that Ezekiel has been having these conversations with God and that Ezekiel is a prophet in their midst. And for that reason, the elders of the community come to Ezekiel, and they come to his house, and probably what this is, is even though he's done all of this street theater, they come to his house hoping for a favorable word from the Lord, and while they're with him, it says, Ezekiel, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there, and then he enters into this apocalyptic image Look at two. Then I looked and behold a form that had the appearance of a man. Behold what appeared his waist to be like fire. Above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out a hand and he took me by the lock of the head. So Ezekiel sees this kind of angelic being and this angelic being grabs Ezekiel by the hair. Like this is not the way I thought apocalyptic visions go. Like, John is like, I was caught up into the third heaven, right? But Ezekiel's like, he grabbed me by my hair, and he pulled me, and he, and he, so now he has this, he's having this ride from Babylon to Jerusalem, this thousand-mile ride by his hair, by being pulled by his hair. I don't know if that's funny to anybody else, but I'm getting a little bit of a chuckle out of it. It might not have been funny to, you're like, you, got, you don't like Ezekiel, do you? No, I, I love Ezekiel. I think it, it's great, but it is, anyway, all right, you got, I'll be here. 8-3, let's keep going. All right. So he comes, he comes into, it says that he goes, he put me in the, uh, in the form of a hand, took me by the lock of the head, lifted me between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. All right. Now, how many of you, you read this, you're like me, you read this, and these verses can tend to be a little flyover. Like, you're like, look, I just got to get through this chapter. You're in your Bible reading plan, and you're like in Ezekiel, and you're like, hey, I don't know. I just know I got to make it through Ezekiel in the next three days, all right? If that's the case, that happens. And sometimes it's helpful to slow down. And one of the questions is, why does he come into Jerusalem from the north? I know that's what you were all thinking when you heard that passage, like he could have come in from any direction. Why the north? And here's the reason, okay? Okay. So he's coming, into the, he's coming into the temple courtyard, the broader temple courtyard, and he's coming from the north. And here's the reason why. When conquerors come into the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is never conquered from the south. And there's a reason for that. Jerusalem's on a hill. On the north, it's the high ground. On the south, it's a valley. And you don't attack a city from a lower position. The same is true from the east and the west. Jerusalem is on this kind of ridge. So any, if you come from the south or the west or the east, you, it's easily defensible. The one place where Jerusalem is not defensible is from the north. As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem, to the Damascus Gate in the north, you can still see, um, you can still see bullet holes in the wall from where during wartime people have tried to conquer in the modern era, have tried to conquer. There's still bullet holes in the walls. That's the one place where you can conquer. And so what's happening here is God is saying, God, God is being removed from the city, or God is moving from the city, and there's conquering that's going to happen, and Ezekiel is being kind of brought in under the un, kind of as an, as an emissary among the conquerors of Israel, this, this judgment over the city. So that's why they're coming in from the north. And then it says in, verse, in uh, verse 4, let's look at verse 4. Behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. He said, Son of man, lift up your eyes toward the north. So I lifted my eyes to the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, the entrance was this image of jealousy. Okay, and this is what's gonna happen. So Ezekiel is coming into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is kind of like these concentric circles. You've got the broader Jerusalem, and then you have, then you have the temple court, which any any Gentile could make it into, the court of the Gentiles. You could make it into this broader court. And then you have these series of concentric circles. So you have, then you have the the court of the women, and then you have the the court where only Jewish circumcised males can get into. And then you have the, the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. And so where Ezekiel is coming is into the broader temple court. And what is going to happen is he's going to see four things as he comes into the court, four things that you wouldn't expect to see in the house of God, the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is the God. God, you, I, you will, I am your God, you will be my people, this is my house. And he's going to see four things that he does not expect. And the first thing is this, it's the, it, what is called the image of jealousy, Look at verse six. He said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations the house of Israel are committing to drive me far from my sanctuary. And back up in verse five, I lifted my eyes to the north. Behold, to the north of the altar gate, there was the image of jealousy. It was the image that provokes to jealousy. This is probably some kind of idol image of the goddess Asherah. And that's in the temple courts, we have an image of an idol in the temple courts. He continues on in verse 7. And he says, He brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said, Son of man, dig in the wall. So he goes into this courtyard, and there's these rooms around. There's these rooms around. And he finds this one, this one kind of unauthorized room, this unauthorized entrance. So he digs in, he goes into this room, and what he finds, he says, Go in and see the vile abomination. So I went in in verse 10. And they're engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and the idols of the house of Israel. And probably what's going on here is that to protect themselves from the Babylonians, the, the Jews that are, the Israelites that are in the city, they make a treaty with Egypt. And they, in order to make this treaty, they take on the gods of Egypt. And so in this, in this quiet, dark room in the temple, They put up all these images of these animals and creeping things that are these idols of Egypt. And they're doing it in the dark, in the secret. And this is not just anybody that's doing this, is it? This is the 70 elders. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the leaders of Israel. Look at what it says. Verse 11, "...and before them stood 70 men, the elders of the house of Israel." With Jazaniah the son of Shaphan, you're like, of course Jazaniah. It's horrible if Jazaniah is doing it. You're like, who's Jezaniah? Okay, here's the point. A couple generations earlier, the nation of Israel has like a string of really bad kings. The nation of Judah has a string of really bad kings. But there's one king, King Josiah, and he he does all these reforms and he tears down the high places and he does all these reforms and he he's he, they're on the right track. And then Josiah he has a stumble but he's a good king. The problem is, Jazaniah is the grandson of good King Josiah. And even he is worshiping these idols in the secret dark room in the temple courtyard. And this is meant to say that, look, this is not just just random idolatry throughout the countryside. This is idolatry in the heart of where God is supposed to be among the leaders of the people of God who are supposed to be faithfully leading God's people in worship of Yahweh. It's bad. He goes on in verse 14. He brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Israel, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Okay, and you're like, who's Tammuz? Well, Tammuz is a Babylonian God. It's a Babylonian God of the seasons, and so part of the worship of Tammuz because Tammuz is like a fertility god is that in the fall Tammuz goes dormant he goes away and in the spring Tammuz comes back so in the fall the women weep for Tammuz and in the spring they rejoice for Tammuz and what's happening is that the people the women of Israel they're weeping for Tammuz they're worshipping Tammuz in the temple courts in the temple courts where there's supposed to be worship of Yahweh. It's gone so far that you've got the elders worshiping in secret rooms. You have women in in the middle of the temple court worshiping an idol. And then the worst, This this is the worst. Verse 16, he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun. So the way, this is, the, way the temple was built, on the top of this mountain, on the top of this ridge, you, it's going down on the west, down on the east, down on the south, and it's facing, it's facing the east. The temple faces the east. And you have these 25 people. So when the sun rises, the sun rises onto the temple. But you have these 25 men who rather than seeking the face of God have turned their backs, they have literally turned their backs on God. And they've bowed down, essentially, and this is essentially showing their backsides to God, worshiping the rising sun. This is at the very heart, the very heart, you have these 25 men who have turned their backs on Yahweh. And it's this kind of crass thing that they have—they have, they have actually—they've—they're they've, showing their backsides to God. I don't know what, what else. they're anyway, we don't have. You get the idea, okay? So, so this is what Ezekiel has seen. And keep in mind, keep in mind, this is an apocalyptic vision. Like, if it had actually happened this way, even when we get into what's going to happen next with the these executioners that are kind of that are going to come in, that this is. Yahweh's showing a vision to Ezekiel. Whether or not this happened in actual real life, it's, it's, dra- it's dramatizing stylistically what has gone on in the temple. So what happens next? Look at verse, chapter 9 and verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, bring near the executioners of the city. And these six angelic beings show up. And they've got these instruments of execution we don't scholars don't know whether these are swords or clubs or whatever but they've got these things that they're going to basically go through the city and everybody that's worshiping that's doing that's worshiping idols they are going to slay and the seventh the seventh one look at 9.3 Actually, I take that back. Look at 9 two. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. So six of them have these clubs or swords or whatever. And one guy has a pen. Six with clubs and one with a pen. And the one with the pen is told, you go through the city. This is what happens in verse in 3 and beyond. You go through the city and everybody that is weeping and lamenting at this idolatry, everyone that's weeping and mourning this idolatry, you mark them on their forehead. You mark them on their forehead. And then as, every, as these executioners come through, everybody who's not marked, they get killed. And this is actually, actually once we get to the book of Revelation, You get to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13 is um, where you have this beast and people receive the mark of the beast either on their right hand or their forehead. In chapter 14 is the real mark and and the author of Revelation is is kind of hearkening back to Ezekiel and and the the Lamb of God stands on the Mount of Olives and marks marks Yahweh on the foreheads of every faithful person. And we have this this idea that God marks out his remnant. So we have, oh gosh, I mean, this is, look, like I said, during Ezekiel, like, why does pastor sound so mad every week? <laughs> okay, and, the, and I, I suppose the point of this, one of the, some of the things about judgment, and that we talked about this last week, that is that in our culture today, in our world, it is very difficult to hear a passage like this. It's very difficult to hear about violence at God's hand. Whether it's visionary or not. I mean, this is a visionary experience, but whatever it is, people are going to lose their lives. And and the point of this is that we are at a tipping point. And judgment in our culture seems to be anathema. And I want to say a few, I just want to say a few words about judgment, okay? Especially in light of hearing just a really harsh passage like this with all of this idolatry and then just, just these angelic beings that are going to go through and be instruments of God's wrath let me just, let's start with this. Are you guys, so I don't know if you guys, is anybody else uncomfortable with the idea of judgment? Does anybody else hear this and they're like, these angels are coming through with clubs and they're gonna club everybody to death who isn't weeping for, like, and it's okay to raise your hand. Like, Ezekiel's gonna raise his hand. Ezekiel's gonna say, Lord, like, what are you doing? It's not wrong, it's not wrong to ask hard questions, okay? It's not hard, it's not wrong to ask hard questions, especially when we are working through a book like Ezekiel, because it brings up a lot of hard questions. I think the worst thing that we can do with our hard questions is just to be told, you shouldn't ask that question. You're like, but I have that question. You shouldn't ask that question. It's kind of like feelings, like when you feel a certain thing and someone says, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You're like, but what do I do? I feel this way, right? I think the best thing to do, and we're going to see, that I think the faithful thing to do when we look at the Psalms particularly the faithful thing to do when we have a hard question is address it to God. I think mean, the worst thing that we can do when we have a hard question is like ignore God and, and ask it to our friends. Like God's, God's kind of harsh here, isn't he? No, the best thing to do is to say, God, God, you seem kind of harsh here. What's, what gives with this? The book of Psalms teaches us that in fa- faithfulness in every point of our lives, is we take our hardest questions and we address them to the one who can do something about them, who can answer that question. We don't talk behind God's back. We take it and we bring it to the Lord. And so if, if, if you do feel like this is harsh, you're not alone. And I would encourage you, let, let's take those questions to the Lord. And I'm going to say a few things here that might, may or may not be helpful Look, we could spend all day talking about the problems of evil or the problems of God's judgment that we might see in our culture today, some of our problems with that. But I just want to say a few things about it. Is that okay? Can we do that? All right, let's do that. Here's the first thing. One of the most significant things that we can do in our lifetime is not simply see the events around us, but interpret the events around us. Like, we can all look at the same event and interpret it differently. You might have even experienced that in your life. You might have experienced that in your marriage. I I dare say, maybe if you're married, you've experienced this. Something happens, and you experience it one way, but yours, which of course is the right way, and your spouse experiences it a completely different way. Same event happened. What was different is your interpretation of the event, right? I think one of the most significant things about our life in Christ is to pray that we might have the wisdom to interpret the events of our life well, right? That, that seems to be one of the most significant things. And we experience this in our life, and we would have to imagine that there are times in the, in the world and in our own lives where we might have difficulty interpreting the events. And that's something that happens here. If you look in, chat, look at 812, look at 812. 812 is the first place that this shows up. And it seems as though, the people of Israel are interpreting this event, what's happening differently than what God, how God is interpreting this event. Look at 8.12. 8.12, then he, said, son, then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, Yahweh does not see us. Yahweh has forsaken the land. The way the elders are interpreting what's happening, God doesn't see us, God has forsaken us. God has left us. Look again in 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city of injustice. For they say, Yahweh has forsaken the land, and Yahweh does not see. Twice, this interpretation of this event... Yahweh doesn't see, and Yahweh has forsaken. Those two things. But look back up in chapter eight and verse six. This is what God, this is how God is interpreting this. He said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing, they drive me far from my sanctuary. Here's Here's the first thing, about God's judgment. It can oftentimes be misinterpreted in a sense. The people of Israel say, God has left us. He's forsaken us. But God says, I didn't leave you, you drove me out. I didn't leave my house, you drove me out. I just heard this story. Again, whether or not it's true, I think it it makes the point with all of the the laws about evictions and what's going on, um, the story is this, that this woman uh, rented a room in her house to someone and this person turned out to be a horrible renter and did all kinds of damage and whatnot and then stopped paying the rent. And so she tried to evict this person and she couldn't evict them because of the laws you can't evict anybody. And it got so bad, so bad, that she moved out of her own house. Now, did she abandon her house? No, she was driven from her house, right? Whatever the, however you explain this, but this idea that God is saying, look, I didn't leave you guys. You drove me out. All the, this is my house, and you brought in all of these other gods into my house. And so God is saying, look, I'm not leaving. You are driving me out. Same event, different interpretations. And I think sometimes when we, we ask this question, like when people have an issue with God, one of the questions is, like, it, has God left you, or have you not made any space for Him? Are you even addressing Him? Or where are you going for these answers? So I think the first thing is just, is simply this, that God does not abandon. God is being driven out. And that's an important distinction to make, first off, when we think about Judgment. God is not abandoned. God is being driven out. They are driving Yahweh away. God is not abandoning his people. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. In this passage, even though we don't get a full catalog of this, that the idolatry produces in the land an injustice, and injustice, idolatry and injustice precede God's judgment. Look at at chapter 8, verse 17 in 8:17 it says this then he said to me have you seen this o son of man is it too light a thing for the house of judah to commit the abominations they commit here that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still to further wrath look at 8:17 We just read 8.17, did we not? Yes, we did. Oh, let's keep going because, oh, I forgot forgot the last line. At the very last line, look at the very last line because this is kind of a funny line. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Whoa. They put the branch to their nose? What? Here's the deal. Scholars have no idea what this means. They have absolutely no idea what this means. They just know it's bad. Whatever it is, it's bad. It's either an act of idolatry or it's, like, it's kind of like giving the middle finger to somebody. Like Whatever it is, it's a bad thing. <laughs> I think it's funny because you read these things and people are like, oh, it must mean this, it must mean this. It's like nobody knows what this means. And it's kind of, they put, but it's the, it's the, it's the punctuation, it's the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. They filled the land with abominations and they spilled blood and they put the branch to their nose. All right, you get the idea. All right, but, um, and then look at 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. And we don't, here's the thing. With Israel and idolatry and injustice, we don't know what comes first, idolatry or injustice. Does idolatry cause injustice or does injustice cause idolatry? All we know is that there's correlation and that in the prophets, there's this overarching theme. That whenever there's idolatry, there's also injustice in the land. What happens with idolatry is that the courts become corrupt. Something happens that people go to a place where they need and expect justice, and there is no justice. And so Yahweh looks down on this, and Yahweh brings Ezekiel along. He says, Look at all this, and there's idolatry and injustice, and blood is being spilled, and it's not the judgment of God, it's injustice. And these sorts of injustices are not chronicled here in Ezekiel, but it's a common theme that the system has become rigged in the wrong way, and people need justice, and they cannot find it. So before God's, before chapter 9, you get chapter 8. It sounds funny to say, but chapter 8 comes before chapter 9. And all the idolatry and injustice of chapter 8 precedes God's execution of his judgment. All right, one more, a couple more things. Regarding, ju- regarding judgment and regarding God. God is gracious and patient and merciful until he isn't. Let me say that in another way. In the scope of the biblical narrative, you read your Bible, you read your Bible from cover to cover. God is exceedingly gracious and exceedingly patient And merciful. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 34 6, Connor preached on this a few weeks ago. The Lord passes before Moses and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You think about, just think about that, that phrase, like it's this overwhelming sense, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will not clear the guilty. Like, think about the weight of that. Like, the overwhelming weight of that is God is gracious, God is merciful. And this is one, this is the point that we talked about last week, but God will be gracious, God will be merciful over and over and over again until he isn't. He will be gracious and gracious and gracious and merciful and forgiving, but at some point there comes this tipping point. The cup gets filled up all the way. Have you ever done that little experiment with the dropper? Like you think the cup is full. You do this in your like junior high science class and you take a little dropper and you're like, you think the cup is full and you, and you, you, you drip more water into it and it starts to like, because all, they're, they're hold, all the electrons are holding together and it starts to form this little bubble of water until one last drop and then it overflows, right? It's the tipping point. It's the straw, it's the one straw that broke the camel's back. Like, you can put a lot of straw on a camel's back. I don't know how much. I don't have a camel. And I don't like camels either. Look, I rode a camel one time. Look, riding a camel is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but only once, okay? One time. But look, one, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the one drop of water, the one thing that brings it to the tipping point, it's that one thing and there are points along the way as we read in the Bible and even in our culture and even in days to come where God is gracious and God is merciful. And First and, and Peter, it says that, you know, the Lord is patient. So he, he doesn't want any to perish. He's patient. But there will be a day when God executes judgment on the wicked. There will be a day when God executes judgment on the wicked. And Ezekiel is like this tipping point. Ezekiel is a book at the tipping point. That's why the pastor sounds so angry every week. That's we're not gonna preach on Ezekiel every day of every, but we need to preach on it at some point. And we need to understand that there's a point where God's patience runs out, and we're we're so grateful that even that on this side of the cross, that Christ has has, has absorbed the shame and the punishment on our behalf. But even so we await a day that Jesus will return, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king, where he makes all things right. Is is anybody in our culture um, longing for things to be made right? I would say this, we're at a point where everybody in our culture is longing for things to be made right. How that happens is different, right? depending on who you talk to. But that, that ultimate, that ultimate uh, desire to see all things be made right, I would say that's something that's deep in the human soul. Regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, we all long for things to be made right. And Jesus will return one day to make all things right. Many people will decry God's judgment as being vindictive, but if atrocities are being committed around the world and countries who could do something about it didn't do something about it, we would be in uproar. We might, we, they might start with diplomacy, but if diplomacy ran out, they, they would, you have to go in and you would have to physically stop it. You would have to hurt the bad guys, right, to stop that from happening. And we would all applaud a government that stopped atrocities, I think of um, Winston Churchill's speech to the British Parliament in 1940. So Neville Chamberlain had gone over to Munich to talk to Hitler in 1938, and Hitler had been expanding, and Chamberlain went over to the Munich Accords and said, hey, look, you sign this piece of paper, we'll give you this little piece of Czechoslovakia, and you can keep that, and you know you can keep the Sudetenland and all this stuff. And, and Chamberlain comes back with a signature on this, the Munich the Munich uh, Agreement, and, he, and you remember, I mean, you didn't remember this because many of you weren't alive, and I wasn't alive, but it's, it's famous. He stands off, he gets off the plane and he waves his paper in the air and he says, peace in our time. And the Nazis roll over Czechoslovakia and they roll over Poland and they, they amass in front of France and they realize that Chamberlain's not the guy. Churchill's the guy. And Churchill comes in in 1940, May 13th, into Parliament. And he says, you ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war. To wage war by land, by sea, by air, with all our might and with all the strength God has given us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. Whoa, like, you get the urgency of that. Like, we, you, what's our policy? Like, you know, uh, Social Security, that's a great policy. Like, those are great things. Or, you know, like, we need, new ho- we need housing for the poor, that's a great policy. But at this point in time, Churchill is like, what's our policy? Our policy is to wage war. Like, this is the tipping point. Diplomacy has failed. And we look at a man like Churchill and we look at that historically and we're like, that was the right decision, that saved Western civilization. And yet we look at God's judgment as, oh, he's vindictive. That we don't think that God has been patient and diplomatic and trying to change the ways of the people through love and through compassion. And in the book of Ezekiel, we come to a point where God has said, look, get the chariot ready because I'm out of here. They're driving me out. And if we're gonna do this, we're gonna have to scrape the foundation. We're gonna have to scrape everything off the foundation and redo it. And that's not vindictive, that's just. And we would applaud our leaders if they were to take such de- decisive action against atrocities. And we do applaud our leaders in the past. And yet, for God, well, God, God's, God has to be gracious more than he already has been. And that's one of the things about judgment that the events of our life sometimes we might interpret differently than God would, He sees it differently. I, I, look, read Churchill's speech. It's, it's called his, uh, it's called his, what is it called? His blood, toil, tears, and sweat speech. Like, it'll rile you up. It's awesome. Like, you got to read it. It's, it's one of the greatest speeches in the history of Western civilization. You need to read it. It's short. It's short. All the good speeches are short, which is, reminds me to wrap this up. All right. You know, Ezekiel 9, eight, also reminds us that even if judgment is just, it still is a point of grief. Ezekiel 9.8, while I, they were striking, while, while these angels with their instruments of death are striking, I was left alone and I fell upon my face and I cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? You can imagine Ezekiel, he's left alone and everybody's being slaughtered around him. He's like, am I going to be the only person left? Judgment is a cause for grief. It's a cause to ask God the difficult questions and to face God and address God And I would say that those who abandon God, who don't address God with their hard questions, who don't address God with their grief, I don't think they will do as well as those who even in their pain and their grief and their doubts will turn to God and address God. I think the thing that we need to understand, again, we don't get to choose where we're born into the story. What does faithfulness look like on this side of the cross? Our job is, is to trust in Jesus and to lean on Jesus. As Connor, as he was leading us in worship, that sometimes we don't feel worthy. But Jesus has made a way for us to address God. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made a way to draw near. And one of the last things about this passage, like this, this, (laughs) if you read Ezekiel, you read up to chapter 11 and it's like, it's all bad news. Is there any good news? Is there any good news? Well, look, there's not going to be a lot of good news until you get to about chapter 33. But you got one little passage, one little passage before chapter 33 where there's hope, and it's in chapter 11, the end of this vision. The end of this vision when Ezekiel's like, what are you doing, God? And Ezekiel 11:16, 16, I'm just going to read it to you. Just listen, just listen. In the middle of all of this pain and judgment, God says to Ezekiel, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for while in the countries where they have gone. To those who have been scattered to the wind in Babylon and Syria and Assyria, all over, God says, look, I might have scattered them, but I have been their sanctuary to them. And I think today, even as we go through this, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's more in there, and we're just running out of time, but the idea is, I don't know what you're going through, but I would say this. God will be your sanctuary. You can go to him, you can go into him. He will protect you. He will abide. If, Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you make your, we want, my father and I, we want to come and make our home in you. God says, I will be their sanctuary. He will be your sanctuary. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are sometimes confused by you, Father. We want to admit that and confess that. We are sometimes amazed by you And sometimes that amazement is positive and sometimes it is scary. You are not tamed by us. You don't belong in an enclosure, you belong in the wild. And when we approach you, we understand that you are God and we are not. And yet at the same time, Father, you have made a way for us to come to you. In your wildness, you still say, come, I will be your sanctuary. I will be your sanctuary. So Father, we pray today that wherever we're at, that we might run to you and sit in your sanctuary, sit in your protection to remember that you say, I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Father, we pray for our hearts, that you would keep them soft, that you would move them from stone to flesh, and that we might turn to you. Would you be our sanctuary as we know you've promised to be? We pray in Jesus' name.